Hi, I'm Steve Clements, and I have a question. Are Iran and the United States destined for collision or for a new deal regarding Iran's nuclear program and national ambitions? Let's get to the bottom line. After Donald Trump pulled the cord on the life support system of relations between Washington and Tehran, President Joe Biden wants that cord plugged back in. And there may be a few new signs of life in that complicated relationship. Two days after Biden said he wanted America to restart negotiations on Iran's nuclear program, Iran extended its permission to do some checks on its nuclear facilities for three more months. So far, so good. Or is it? Biden also insisted Iran go back to the uranium enrichment limits outlined in the original deal from six years ago before the U.S. drops its sanctions. And Iran is also cutting video access to nuclear inspectors. It's obvious that neither side trusts the other, but who cares about trust? What America and Iran did was a transaction, a nuclear program reduction with inspections in return for sanctions being lifted against Iran, plus the normalization of economic relations. Can they do it again? Today, we're talking to Dr. Roxanne Farman from Ion, who teaches Middle East politics at the University of Cambridge and is the author of Blood and Oil, a prince's memoir of Iran from the Shah to the Ayatollah. And journalist Eli Lake, opinion columnist for Bloomberg, covering national security and foreign policy, and he's been covering this issue for a very long time. It's great to have you both with us. I want to start out mentioning that Joe Biden, President Biden, has given a speech at the Munich Security Conference. Uh, we're going to play a clip. That's why we said we're prepared to re-engage in negotiations with the P5 plus one on Iran's nuclear program. We must also address Iran's destabilizing activities across the Middle East. And we're going to work in close cooperation with our European and other partners as we proceed. Eli, let me ask you, is it necessary for the United States to have a deal with Iran, to make a deal with Iran, or is it better that we move on without such a deal? What are your thoughts in reaction to the president's talk? Well, I think that what we've seen uh, in recent years is that uh, presumably the Israelis and others are very good at sabotaging Iran's progress. Um, it's not a particularly pleasant way in which this is done, uh, including the assassination of their top nuclear scientist. But the, these sorts of things, I think, can set back a program which shows that the initial argument from the Obama administration in 2015, which is that there will either be a full-on war or there will be a deal, is not necessarily true. It's not, in my view, a binary option in terms of steps that can set back the program short of diplomacy and certainly short of a full-on war. And thus far, um, despite many open threats from um, the Iranian regime with regards to the killing of Qasem Soleimani in two, uh, la last year and other sorts of threats, there, have not, there has not been the kind of escalations that we saw in the run-up to uh, the killing of Qasem Soleimani in terms of attacks on um, other countries' uh, oil tankers in the Persian Gulf and um, a, a, a sort of uh, the pace of attacks on U.S. Uh, positions in Iraq. And certainly the Israelis have paid you know, real serious price for its longstanding campaign to go after Iranian forces in Syria when they believe that they're transferring advanced weaponry. So in my view, um, you know, a deal would be nice, but I don't know that it is as necessary as people believed five or six or seven years ago. So I just want to double down this. So you're, what I'm hearing from you is just saying that sort of hybrid, covert, war, sabotage, the status quo uh, is working, and so my, why mess with it? Am I getting that right? 
Well, it depends on what you mean by working. It's certainly true that the Iranians have um, in, in kind of increased the ante uh, in terms of uranium enrichment and other sorts of things having to do with the original JCPOA. But remember, if the Iranians are only interested in a deal that restores that agreement, then a lot of its key provisions would be expiring by 2026 and beyond anyway, and they would still be allowed to test uh, long-range missiles. They would still be allowed to purchase advanced uh, conventional weapons. And it does, obviously, the deal doesn't says nothing about uh, its various campaigns in the Middle East, which are a threat to many of U U.S. allies, not just Israel. So in that respect, um, sure, uh, there, there are issues that they can do. And I, what I'm saying is that I think that there are ways to set back the program short of diplomacy and short of, a, of a, an open war. Professor, I'd love to get, get your take on this, but I want to set the stage for just a moment. Um, there were a lot of people, even in the Trump administration, that felt that Iran was living up to what it agreed to in that uh, P5 plus 1 uh, Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, and that it was the United States, even from the point where President Trump began encouraging companies to disinvest or not invest, that that, that treaty, that, well, that wasn't really a treaty, but that arrangement began to come apart. And I guess my question to you is, you know, Iran is saying the United States abrogated the treaty. treaty. It did not. And thus, to get the treaty back in alignment, President Biden is out of line saying that, that Iran needs to move force first. So I'd love to get your take, because I know you've been critical of the way President Biden has set up the terms of this so far. Well, I, I feel as though what often gets lost is the fact that this is a deal about con con containing and constraining a nuclear deal, uh, a nuclear program. And often, I think, we tend to get an awful lot of other political elements in there. And I think none of us sleep as well knowing that this nuclear program is beginning to ratchet up ever since uh, the U.S. withdrew from that, uh, that deal. So I think um, a little bit in, in producing a different viewpoint than your other guest, I think that it's absolutely critical to get this deal back. It's low-hanging fruit. It's all been negotiated. It's everybody, in fact, that's on the Biden team has been involved in the past, and they have a good idea of how specifically this was, was uh, negotiated and that the Iranians agreed to it. And I think that one of the things also that gets lost is this is not a deal based on trust. This is a deal that was based entirely on uh, the other negotiating countries distrusting Iran. And so um, when the U.S. withdrew, there were no elements in the deal to um, to punish another state. The only aspects that are in the deal for punishment are on Iran. So once the U.S. withdrew, the only option that Iran had to express its sense of uh, discomfort at this was to abrogate the deal. That's all there is inside the terms of that deal. So I do feel as though it's quite easy to go back, but it has to be from the U.S. side because they're the ones that withdrew and therefore the Iranians can't make them go back until they're back into some kind of negotiations with that. Let me ask you both this. I mean, I, I like Eli, has been a friend of mine for a long time. Um, I remember during the Bush administration when there was discussion, it was turned away, of a potential grand bargain with Iran. 
At that time, the Republican strategic class was very much opposed to that approach. That would have dealt with terrorism. It would have dealt with the MEK. It would have dealt with a, uh, a nuclear issue. But that was the wrong proposal at the wrong time. When the Obama administration came in and said, well, we're not going to do a grand bargain. We're going to focus on the clear and present danger of a railroad course, uh, of, a, of a collision course to, you know, Iran having a nuclear bomb and trying to sort of deal with that precisely and specifically. And then a lot of the GOP criticism of Obama was, why aren't you doing a grand bargain? Eli, where am I wrong in that? Because I think part of the criticism of today is Iran's ballistic missile uh, research and, and, and work and tests. Uh, its support of transnational terrorism, you know, its behavior uh, regionally and even, even globally. And so that these are, parts aren't there. But I'm just wondering if it's just a whack-a-mole problem that, that many GOP leaders are opposed to any deal. So they want a grand bargain. They don't want a grand bargain. Wait, you know, t let me start with you and then go to Roxanne. Well, there are two, I think, I have two criticisms of the way you, you framed that. First of all, the ballistic missile program is a big part of any nuclear weapons program. It's probably the way... It's the way most countries would deliver a nuclear weapon. So a, a nuclear deal that doesn't address development of, of ballistic missiles, but also the you know, various limits on uranium enrichment expire over time, as do research for the advanced centrifuges, which would make their program more efficient. So just on the nuclear terms, I don't think it's a very good deal. More importantly, in the last five or six years, what we've seen is a maturation of America's allies in the Middle East that are most affected by Iranian aggression. So I, perhaps it was possible in 2013 and 2012 when some of the initial diplomacy on the Iran deal uh, came forward that you could cut such a deal without having the Israelis or the Emiratis or the Saudis at the table. But at this point, I'm not entirely sure that that is feasible. It's possible that, you know, the P5 plus one and Iran would come to terms and get back into the 2015 deal. But if the Israelis and the Saudis and the Emiratis continue to feel threatened, there are plenty of things they can do on the economic side on the kind of shadow military side that um, would make the deal not, uh, not, not valuable in any way for the Iranians and would show that in some ways they need to kind of feel that the terms of the nuclear uh, arrangement itself uh, met their security needs. And so I, in my view, I think the failure to address those needs the first time around in 2015 is an important lesson uh, that the negotiators this time should keep in mind. That if they go back to the original deal, there's no there's no guarantee. In fact, I would I would bet against the idea that the Israelis, the Saudis, and the Emiratis would uh, adhere to that. Roxanne, your thoughts on th what I what I see? I mean, I, th I think Eli's raised some very good points on the other side of this, but but I do recall reporting on this myself, um, where at various points of deal making with Iran, we've been out of sync. But you know, what is your take on where we are now? and whether other pieces of this puzzle can be added to the JCPOA to make it more palatable to some of the critics? Well, I think one of the things that certainly came along with the original deal was that it had flanking diplomacy as part of that. Mm. Had the, the deal gone forward and had there been a certain degree of trust and investigation, then the next steps were to start negotiating about uh, missiles and about regional security. And I, one of the things that's gotten lost in that is that was part of the original deal. And I think the idea that we look at Iran after a year in which it has certainly ratcheted up uh, nuclear production, but done so 
under the understanding and in the hope that there would be a change in administration in the United States, and therefore in many ways has constrained itself, mm. has not retaliated, has uh, in, in exchange when it, it had two major assassination um, assassinations take place on its grounds, that it has not retaliated in a number of other ways against Israeli provocations that were quite extreme over the summer, I don't think should be looked at as thereby we can go around Iran. I think at last one of the issues is it's always being asked, it should in increase its behavior, it should uh, become a better behaved state. I think it's shown that it can over this year. And then to take it the step further and say, well, therefore, we can go around it and we don't have to have a, you know, a return to the deal, I think is taking all the wrong messaging from its, uh, its approach this year. Um, thank you for that. Eli, one, one of the dimples in this story is that um, this week we had uh, essentially the IAEA director work out a deal where IAEA specters can remain in the country and give a lifelong to the JCPOA negotiations, but with some limits that are not completely known what those limits are. But we know that Iran's legislative uh, uh, branch of government has sort of you know, required that the spot checking and that the video surveillance of certain nuclear sites in Iran uh, be suspended. And Javad Zarif, the foreign minister, has come out and said, you know, we have politics, too. We may not agree with it, but our, our, we have a political situation where they're, they're producing. I mean, it reminds me in some ways of America in that. But I'd love to get your take on this issue, because I hadn't really thought about it before, that when you negotiate a deal with Iran, you negotiate a deal with the government, sort of feel like you're kind of doing the deal with the supreme leader, Khamenei. Um, but when you hear about the fragmentation of perspective inside Iran, what's your take on that? Well, I, I, I guess I'm a dissenter of a kind of conventional wisdom that um, there is such a thing or a meaningful sense of politics within Iran. It's true. There are members of the Iranian Majlis that um, give aggressive speeches, and then there's Javad Zarif, who claims that his hands are tied. But we also know that if you look at the longer history of Iranian politics going back to the late 1990s, that there has been a concerted effort by the unelected and um, illegitimate branch of the Iranian government to sideline, imprison, kill, and exile anyone who's ever asked for opening up that society and uh, to, to sort of be a reform. And I think that um, it's foolish for those of us in the West to still think that there is a kind of Iranian moderate or reform element within the very, very narrow band that's left that's running the country. What's, you know, Khamenei is running the country, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps is running the country. If they understand that it is in their interest, that it's an existential question in terms of economic sanctions, that they have to make a deal, then they mm. will. And that was sort of shown in 2013 and then 2015. But the, the bottom line, in my view, is that um, the politics question internal to Iran is a bit of a smokescreen. Um, in my view, you know, there's a lot of leverage right now that the Biden administration has because the sanctions and, for the most part, secondary sanctions remain in place. One of the things that, hap that was sort of shown and proven under the Trump administration is that those secondary sanctions can have an enormous bite even without the buy-in from the other P5 plus one members. Um, that the U.S. economy is powerful enough on its own to impose a terrible cost on the Iranian economy unilaterally. So given that, and I think the Iranians understand that, then why not use this moment to ask for the very kinds of things, at least in the nuclear file, that even top Biden administration officials understand should be in a final under 
deal, uh, you know, the elimination of sunsets, uh, development of missiles. All of this was sort of put out by Anthony Blinken, the new uh, Secretary of State. This has been written in papers when he was out of government by Jake Sullivan. These are all goals that most experts believe uh, a, a, a real Iranian nuclear deal should have. I would add, even though, uh, you know, I'm not in the government, there should be some basic sort of uh, human rights, release of, of foreign hostages, release of political prisoners. Why not? And if I think that if the regime understands that, you know, there's no way out from under this enormous, these enormous secondary right. sanctions, unless they do this sort of thing, um, and they have to really believe that, then I think that a lot more can be accomplished. Professor, I'd love to get your take on the politics that are, that are peaking up, but also there's uh, an election coming up this summer in Iran. You know, how much should that be a factor in how the Biden administration proceeds with regard to the JCPOA? Yes, there certainly is an election coming up. It's in June, and it's for uh, a new president. And um, certainly the fact that the uh, U.S. withdrew from the uh, nuclear deal has really tarnished the reputation of the sitting president, who is a moderate. And so it's very unlikely that the moderates will get back in and um, much more likely to have a hardliner uh, that will, will win this of one stripe or another. Mm. But I think there's two other elements here. One is this was a U.N.-brokered uh, uh, formal international legal deal, and the United States withdrew from that. Mm. And I think from the U.S. perspective, from the Western perspective, it has a reputation that has been damaged by having withdrawn from a deal it signed when no other party, particularly Iran, was breaking that deal at the time. It was fully in compliance and remained in compliance for another year. So on the one hand, I think from the U.S. perspective, as a returning to the, Uni to the United Nations as a leader of the world, uh, that's something that consider, and because it's damaged its reputation. Mm. And on the other, the uh, Iranians do not just have the United States as an option to consider in its economic, its financial, and its oil dealing. It is very much involved with China. There's a 25-year uh, deal that is being hammered out right now, and it's close to Russia, and they've uh, been able to strengthen that arrangement and alliance over Syria. Uh, it may not be a story, but nonetheless, from their perspective, it's uh, solidified a number of um, exchanges. And so I see that if the United States does not hmm. take the advantage that it has to negotiate and go back in and take the JCPOA further, the direction Iran is going to go is east. And it will have, in many ways, a sense of greater trust with those powers than it will with the United States. Well, thank you. One of the elements, I mean, you sort of talked about going east, but one other dimension that I would love to get at uh, in, our, in our last few minutes is that uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel are both key parts of this equation as well. And they've been, you know, seen as partners of the United States largely addressing Iran. But right now, President Biden uh, isn't speaking with the crown prince of, of, of Saudi Arabia, who, who is apparently the power center in that country. Uh, and barely speaking to Prime Minister Netanyahu, though we finally did uh, in Israel. Is that opportunity for the Iran deal or obstacle? Is Iran reading that as weakness of the key parties and the strength that would actually get it there? E Eli, your thoughts? Well, um, I mean, it's, it's too soon to say whether, you know, the Revolutionary Guard Corps or the Quds Force planned 
the escalation that we saw last week in uh, Erbil in northern Iraq, or for that matter, the uh, you know the, the attack on the Saudi airport from Houthi rebels, or for that matter, even the um, uh, killing of a prominent uh, anti-Hezbollah journalist in Lebanon. But all of these things happened uh, are likely because of uh, Iranian-sponsored groups in the region. So I think that they are testing right now. And hmm. any kind of signal that the United States uh, is uh, distancing itself from the principal victims of Iranian aggression uh, in the region, I think, is a really dangerous message and a dangerous kind of provoca provocation. But again, at a certain point, this is not uh, an abstraction for the Saudis, the Emiratis, or the Israelis. It's a very real problem that they are facing a, a kind of broad spectrum of threats from the Iranians, the nuclear being one of them, but it's also through their proxies and other kinds of things, that the, the notion that they are not going to defend their interests, especially since they've proven pretty successful, and I'm thinking of the Israeli intelligence operations going right. back to the Mossad raid of that warehouse, is foolish. So it's in Biden's interest to try to at least coordinate a response and try to meet the uh, Israeli and Saudi concerns at this point. And because he has, I think, far more leverage than he's acknowledging, I don't understand why he wouldn't at this point. Well, I appreciate it. Roxanne, let me just give you this last question, both about, about Israel and, and Saudi Arabia and whether we need to patch things up uh, with them in some way to make our Iran case stronger and better. But just in our last minute, I'm going to give you the last word on China and Russia, too, because I've just always wondered, you know, and, and Eli mentioned it, that, some, that this may be a moment when you can make global sanctions work. I've always sort of seen that as a complicated question, that to a certain degree, uh, the, u the, the, the unanimity in sanctions is not quite as strong as people think, whether this is a strategic opportunity with Iran, with China and Russia, that we have a blind spot about. So just in our last minute, I'm going to be unfair to you, if you could share your thoughts on that front. <laughs> Cover the world in a minute. Well, I have to say that I think that one of the, the real um, policy objectives of the Biden administration is to bring down the temperature in the Gulf. And I think we have seen that the Saudis feel the same way. And the uh, fact that they've patched up relations with their immediate neighbors in the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, and that Qatar is a uh, negotiator in some sense between Emirates and, and Saudi and Iran. Um, I think possibly shows that that is, is in a sense, working on a, on a set of different levers than the old mechanism of everybody uh, on the one side of the Gulf against Iran. So I would say that there's different ways to interpret that. Um, and as far as uh, China and, and Russia, well, certainly from the Chinese perspective, Embar the um, the sanctions are eroding. They are ratcheting up oil imports from Iran, partially through other countries. I think there's been a certain degree of pressure that's going on to raise the financial uh, access of Iran to its reserves. And so I think that that's been one of the problems we've always seen with the sanctions. That's one of the reasons Obama went into this deal, is mm. that eventually sanctions regimes erode. And that's what we're beginning to see now. Well, Dr. Roxanne Farman Farmayan of Cambridge University and Eli Lake of Bloomberg Opinion, really appreciate having a civil discussion on this very tough subject. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So what's the bottom line? If you ask the average American if they want better relations with Iran, the answer would probably be somewhere between heck no and who cares. 
But for the national security community, Iran is up there next to China and Russia as a defining challenge of our time. The West has to decide whether it wants to live with a nuclear Iran or stop Iran from getting the bomb. Black and white scenarios, no shades of gray. And if Iran is allowed to grow and prosper in return for sidelining its nukes, does that mean it will easily take over as the dominant powerhouse of the Middle East in short order? That's what Washington and its friends are most afraid of. So is there a middle ground? It's going to be hard to find it, but it's worth trying. And that's the bottom line.